Welcome to the All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. I'm your host, Elisa Southall. My goal is to improve candidate and employee experiences as well as company cultures throughout U.S. employers. We do this by leading with empathy, diversity, inclusion, equality, teamwork, and transparency. Come on this journey with me. And now, a word from our sponsors. Are you looking for an out-of-the-box solution for hiring talent? Look no further than the secret formula of hiring talent. Dot, dot, dot. It's not so secret. My ebook. I published this through Book Boom Learning, and this ebook covers a variety of topics all in the hiring space. I've worked with many hiring managers who all say, what is the secret formula of hiring talent? Well, I'm here to walk you through the hiring process, investing in your community, eliminating antiquated hiring practices, being the leader in pay, leveraging your resources, and success being only a few changes away. I think that if you are anybody who is looking to hire talent right now, maybe struggling to hire talent, this could be a really good resource for you. Let's change the game of hiring talent. Get rid of those old antiquated ways that we interview and go through the hiring process. And let's make it fresh and invigorating to get new talent and to get them in a more creative way. Go out today and purchase The Secret Formula of Hiring Talent, It's Not So Secret by Elisa Southall. That's me. It's only $8.99 on Book Boom Learning. I hope you guys enjoy the read. Let me know what you think. Drop a review or two on either the Book Boom Learning page or on my website. Let me know what you think of the ebook. Thank y'all. Bye. Thank you for listening to a word from our sponsors. And now, back to your episode of All People Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. As always, I am your host, Elisa Southall, and I have the fantastic privilege today of being with Nicolette Mitchell. Nicolette, tell us about yourself. Hey, I'm so excited to be here today. Um, You're actually one of the first LinkedIn connections that I had a coffee chat with like a whole year ago. So it's like super exciting for me to finally get the chance to talk to you again first and then like to talk to your audience. So um, hey, everybody, I'm Nicolette. My pronouns are she, her and hers. I'm currently a third year doctoral student here at Vanderbilt University. I study education. Um, My specialty is justice and diversity in education, and I'm studying Um, how identity affects how we learn science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, I'm a lot of things. Um, I'm a multifaceted individual. So uh, I'm a retired lab rat. So I was a paleoclimatologist. I'm a part of the 98% of scientists that say that climate change is real because I studied it. Um, So I know it to be true. Um, I'm also a retired DEI practitioner. So I spent the last three years working at small liberal arts colleges, leading their equity and inclusion efforts. Um, And now I spend lots of time on LinkedIn talking about those same things um, and blending all of my passions. So I talk about STEM. I talk about equity and inclusion. I talk about what it means to be a graduate student. Um, I talk about what it means to be a mom. Um, I am committed in this season to being whole. And so, yeah, it's really nice to meet y'all. I said a whole lot really quickly, but we'll dive into it as we talk today. Absolutely. And because you have so many facets of what you do, we're going to try to get into all the different ones because there are some things that I've seen on your profile that just amaze me, right? The statistics that you put out, the information that you share. And so one of the things you talked about is DEI in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, math, 
And I know that there's an arts one in there too, if you do steam. Um, so tell me if you can, and, and the listeners, why is STEM or STEAM such a focus for DEI? Why is DEI necessary for those, those groups of professions? Oh my goodness. All right. So, you know, when folks think of a scientist, oftentimes, you know, a very stereotypical image comes to mind. Uh, folks have actually done studies on this where you think of an older white man with crazy hair in a lab coat uh, surrounded by lots of glass test tubes, right? Um, and that image isn't a mistake because the sciences remain one of the least diverse parts of the workforce when we're talking about the United States. Um, of course, you know, if we think about global majority, aren't old white men. <laughs> but when we think about the United States and how science, technology, engineering, and mathematics works, um, it's primarily been a space for wealthy um, folks, a space for men. Um, and it's been diversifying as, you know, well, we had civil rights, so <laughs> women didn't have the right to enter the workplace. Um, uh, and a lot of people of color and first gen low income people did not have access to STEM. Um, and it's one of the places where uh, change has been slow uh, because of scientific process, because of peer review, oftentimes STEM is hard to change and move. Um, and so it's important to think about what it means to diversify STEM when we think about the future of our planet. I think a lot of the most critical conversations we're having right now, like, you know, there's hurricanes happening uh, off the coast of <laughs> California for the first time right now. Um, that's related to climate change. That's happening. Those discussions are happening in the sciences. But the folks who have access to those spaces tend to be older, richer white folks. Ask me how I know, because I was there. Um, so when I was a master's student, for instance, I was in one of the top programs in the country. And out of our department that had 80 graduate students, I was the one black person for two whole years. And that's considered the best uh, program in the country. Um, so um, a lot of it is social issues. Um, so people recruit based on goodness of fit which oftentimes means that they're recruiting people that are like them. And if it's all older, rich, white folks or folks whose fathers and great grandfathers were geologists, which is a case in my field. I keep using it as an example because I feel like it is, you know, a rich one for me to mine. Um, oh, pun intended, but <laughs> can't help it. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, there's to tons of reasons why it stays um, the way that it is. It stays homogenous. Um, and there's tons of, innovation that needs to happen in STEM that will help humanity to move forward. And so it is critical for us to begin to think about what it means to diversify that particular space. Like we can't pick up our phones and turn on the light and do a lot of the things we take for granted without STEM. And if only a small group of people are contributing to those innovations, then like our innovation is going to slow to a steady halt. So yeah, shortest answer to a very complex question for sure. <laughs> well, and, you know, it makes me think, right, and we see diversity issues, DEI issues across the board, um, you know, but I, I really love this focus on the education piece. One of the things I saw, and I don't know if it was you that posted it or somebody else, but even when we look at those uh, soap dispensers for hands or for paper towels, right, they have a harder time seeing um, or recognizing hands for people of color because they're programmed to be for white individuals. Um, and so it was interesting, but when we think of like that DEI piece, if we had more people in the room who were in those categories, right? In, in that, you know, 
um, people of color, right, all of those other categories that you can think of, then we may not have a system who is discriminating against people without even realizing that they're doing it. Right. And people think, okay, well, science is unbiased, right? But like the scientists make the science, (laughs) right? Um, You won't have, it doesn't just, we don't just wake up and science just happens. Um, And so if there's bias in like coded into the programs, right? And so we can think about this on so many levels, but like, I think the soap dispenser example is one that stuck with me because it still happens to me every day when I go to the bathroom and I'm like, why is the soap not coming out? And I'm like, oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yes, we know why. Um, Someone's done the research on this. But yeah, um, if we don't think about the scientists that are doing the science, we leave out a whole lot. So yeah. Well, and it's the same thing with the coding, right? I I was having a conversation with somebody that they're using AI and I was like, okay, but be careful because one, your AI is probably plagiarizing, plagiarizing, right? On everything, because where do you think they get their information from? One. And two, I'm like, you have to realize that what you're typing in, right? It's all coded to whoever is coding it. And so there are biases within those codings. Yeah. Like it is a two-edged sword, right? Because technology... Like so many things are technology, like even like the first human being who realized that like fire can cook meat and then unlock the fact that we can like, (laughs) hey, now we can like save food for longer periods of time. That's technology. Right. So it's super helpful. And also just what you're saying um, when we think about AI, uh, so much bias can be coded in and then be seen as objective. Like the other day I was on chat GPT. Um, I'm nosy. So like I always got to do my own research. Right. And I should I should have probably posted to LinkedIn about this, but I was just too busy being like, that's interesting. Um, but I asked the AI to like give me some interesting LinkedIn article titles about equity and inclusion. And all of the titles it gave me were negative. Like it was regarding minoritized people. And it was always from a deficit perspective. And I kept having to ask the robot. I'm like, OK, like all of these are deficit oriented. Could you give me some positive stories? About, and it was struggling. Um, and I was like, I've found uh, a coded inequity in chat GPT where like it cannot think of things to write about people who are marginalized. I asked it to write about Black and Latino people, but it couldn't think about how to write those things without this deficit framework. And so I'm wondering, like, where is it pulling from? Who's training this AI? And also, like, for what purpose? So, yeah, I hear you on that 100 percent. So the fact that you're looking into all this and talking about it and educating people on it is so important. I mean, even when we think of, and my next question is going to be a really loaded question for you, um, because I'm going to ask you, you know, what are ways we can do to, or what are things we can do to improve, to create more inclusivity for genders and demographics and, you know, marginalized communities. And one way I can think of is like, they already have it, which is like coding for women, coding for women, right. Or coding for girls. And they're trying to do that early on, but there's gotta be a, a larger way to say, hey, we need people that have diverse perspectives. Um, are you talking about like coding in terms of when we think no, about just, AI? Yeah, just no, just in general. Like how can we accelerate the dial in terms of the STEM, right? How do we get more DEI? You talked a lot about science and geology and how do we get them interested and make it a fair playing field? So I think the example I gave you where I was trying to, I was trying to train chat GPT, right? <laughs> I was kind of giving it a DEI workshop. Um, (laughs) And I think one of my strategies is like, all right, like, let's question what we thought about as normal and whose perspectives get centered and start to train ourselves to see the 
uh, assets that these historically underserved groups actually bring to a space. I think oftentimes people are focusing on the deficits, even like, oh, let's like give girls more computer science as if like girls didn't have a lot of computer science or they don't already know how to do STEM. Um, it's like approaching the problem as if the people who are left out are the problem. But oftentimes it's how do we reframe what we consider to be science? And that is a huge task. That's why I'm here, right? I stopped what I was doing and came back to get the doctorate because I was like, I want time and space to think about these things and unpack them. Because like what counts as good science? Who counts as a good scientist? And how can we shift those ideas and that's like that's the scary stuff that's the stuff that like gets people really upset but like without doing that work then all of the other things we try to do is just window dressing yeah and and I'm trying to think of like how do we get right like more people interested in this or how do we provide you know I know I don't want to look at it from a deficit perspective like you were talking about right because there's not always that but you know when you were talking about like those rich white male geologists right how do we get marginalized like you know people women of color right to be interested in geology like you are right how do we change that mindset and is it just making it more appetizing and saying hey geology is cool right or is it saying like here's a representation here is somebody that who's in this space telling you that you can do it all of the above because like right now like you can't see it so like <laughs> why would you want to be there um I've experienced getting in the room and being like I get it. I understand why no one else wants to be here. Um, <laughs> that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. That's a whole podcast for itself. But like, also, um, I think, you know, I'm currently looking through data that I've collected, interviewing the folks who actually persist. Like, why did you stay? And oftentimes it's people who have had experiences, have had mentors that were able to say, like, this is why what we're doing is relevant to what you're doing. It's like you belong here. Your ideas are valid. Actually, your ideas are what we need to push the field forward because we are just saying the same thing over and over again. We've been doing that for decades. That's not working. Um, and then also like, here's how this affects you from what you value um, and what you value matters to our community as well. Because right now that's not the case. Like uh, right now, what is valued in STEM oftentimes is from one very dominant normative um, demographic. And I think uh, the same can be said because I'm doing I'm doing multiple research projects, but like the one for Black women, so I'm thinking about race, race and gender. I'm also doing one for Black and Latino folks who are LGBTQ, and so it's true for uh, gender and sexuality as well. Where like if we have this very narrow box, there's no room for folks to think about and be them full selves. But like if we expand <laughs> what we think about and how we think about science, then there's actually way more room. So like yeah, all of the above, like more representation, yes also like more space to think about why the science is relevant and whose science is relevant and how we come to relevancy in science. Yeah. Going back to that bias piece and correct me if I'm wrong, you've been in education longer than I have, but um, when you're selecting people, right? Cause when you have a, a PhD program, a master's program, those high level science programs, there's a selection process. And just like in hiring, there's biases, right? We have a locked in biases that are created, even from seeing the resume for the very first time. And so I know that there are applicant tracking systems and hiring managers who will do resume, like blind resume reviews. Do you feel like 
science and STEM could benefit from having sort of blind, uh, blind information so that we just take the best of it rather than knowing where it came from? I think uh, that would be useful. Um, I think it would disrupt what is happening right now, which is oftentimes people hire who they know. <laughs> um, honestly, that's uh, that's even how I've gotten my positions. I know that I'm in a pri privileged place um, because I went to a private liberal arts college and I was surrounded by a lot of folks with a lot of power um, and wealth. And so I had access to networks that got me to where I am right now. Um, that is not sustainable. That is not the case for a lot of folks who are first general income um, and like oftentimes when I get to these spaces, I look around, I'm like, oh, like I'm the only person from a city. I'm the only person who's like parent doesn't make like six figures. Like I start thinking about like all of the signals that tell me that people like me shouldn't be here. Um, so, yeah, for sure. I think the blind hiring would be useful. Um, I think it's going to be what has to happen, given that the affirmative action ruling just got overturned, um, which isn't something I've seen people want to touch on LinkedIn. <laughs> And I don't even know how to broach the subject. Um, but when we think about DEI, like that's super important. Like we can't select people on the basis of race. Um, even with that said, right, there are markers. <laughs> people, like even if we try to blind applications, like, okay, if I'm in the Black Student Union, you're going to know that I'm a Black person. <laughs> or if I'm a Pell Grant recipient, like I think there's limitations to the blinding. Um, and I also think that there our merits to having supports and mechanisms specific to the groups that are minoritized. Because I think sometimes when we do for all initiatives, then often for all becomes for the dominant norm in the majority. Um, so comp I always complicate a nuance, right? So there's no simple answer. All of the above, like blinding would help, but also I think there's space and room for very targeted support. Um, I think the support programs that I've been a part of for first general income people have been life-changing and instrumental. So. And listen, I, I, and a couple of the people I know did make affirmative action posts because we weren't talking about it on LinkedIn and we needed to be talking about it on LinkedIn. Um, and you can definitely talk about it here. There's no problem with that. I'm all about creating, you know, bringing attention to things that unfortunately shouldn't have been changed in the first place um, or that need to get changed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, I love when you talk about everything, you talk about making higher education a place where um, historically underrepresented people can thrive, right? That's super exciting, Those that phrasing in general. And so we've talked a lot about that, but you also mentioned that you specialize in justice. And I know that there's part of that, but tell us, tell us what you mean by that. Right. Uh, so oftentimes people think about the diversity. So they're like, let's just bring more people along. Um, which then means that the folks who enter the space kind of feel like how I was talking about before you get there, and you look around, and you're like, oh, there is like no room for me to be my full self, because like, if I want to be here, then I need to conform to, if I talk about geology, it's like the Tevas, and <laughs> I have to like have the right hiking gear, I have to come with the kind of the rock hammer, I have to like drinking beer, like, there's just a like, there's the unspoken norms that center a place and then like I don't think that that's justice at all I do not believe that inviting people who've been historically marginalized to spaces that are oppressive and that are closed is justice I think that that is uh <laughs> someone uh in the academy and I can't remember which scholar right now but they call it soul murder like you bring someone in and then they continue to chip pieces away of themselves in order to fit in um and that's a major cost I don't feel like people should have to sacrifice their mental health 
um, their culture in order to be in a place. And I think in a lot of institutions, um, higher education being one of them, that's the norm right now. Um, yeah, it's a downer. So that's also why I felt focused on the thriving. I think the thriving and the justice are go hand in hand for me. Like justice means being able to show up as myself and be enough and not have to change. Um, I think that justice also means like, yeah, like economic justice. So like <laughs> having access to resources and not having to search for them and not having to beg for them. Like they are willingly and freely provided because they are needed. Um, so yeah, I think we could unpack that and again, talk for hours, especially on the subject of justice and thriving in the academy. Um, but yeah, I think justice for me is moving beyond just bringing bodies in as the marker and checking the box, but like, okay, what do you do to make sure that that person has access and can achieve what they set out to do? Yeah. And I know when you were talking about sort of those, those pieces of them chipping away because they're trying to conform so that they are fitting into whatever society belongs. Deepa Prashathaman in her book, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Corporate uh, Power in Corporate America, talks a lot about that. And I loved listening to her share those experiences because almost every single one of those women of color that she interviewed said, when I've been in a room, I've had to change who I was, how I acted, whatever it was to fit in and feel comfortable or not feel like I was in jeopardy of losing my position or losing my status or whatever it was. And, you know, to me, I was like, it's so unfortunate that people can't see that that exists, that there are people that still don't believe that that is happening. Um, that, you know, I'm like, you all need to go read this book because it's real information. Right. And I'm a, like, big proponent of educating people. And the fact that some people can still feel like this is not a reality is, is frustrating. And so I did some, a newsletter on all micro and macro aggressions and people were like, we didn't even know that there was such a thing. And I was like, you're probably doing half of these things on the list. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was interesting. But one of the other things that I wanted to talk with you about, because you brought it up and I, uh, in one of your posts, and you talked about um, sort of, and I'll call them inequities, but differences in sort of when you're tagging a peer review source. So I had to do a master's program and you have to, you have to tag peer review articles and you have to cite sources. And you were even talking about how most of the sources that are being cited, especially around STEM, are, you know, still white. And now a word from our sponsors. Diversity, empathy equality, inclusion, teamwork, and transparency. Those are words that mean something to me, and I hope they mean something to you. Those are six values that a people partner lives by every single day. Those are six values that I live by every single day, not only as the CEO of a people partner, but in general. If you are somebody like me who lives these six values every day and wants to share that with the world, I encourage you to purchase a People Partner t-shirts. These t-shirts are navy blue, come in a men's cut, and range in size from medium to 2XL. On the front, you will find the diamond-shaped uh, rainbow hearts that we have in our logo. On the back, you will see the six values in rainbow colors. These t-shirts are uh, $30 and can be shipped anywhere in the U.S. If you're outside of the country looking for a shirt, send me a message. If none of these sizes fit for you, 
let me know and I'll add you on the list for the next order. I hope to see you all in your A People Partner swag and representing those six values that mean so much to us. Thank you for your purchase. Thank you for listening to a word from our sponsors. And now, back to your episode of All People Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, again, I'm always forgetting which scholars. I feel like I'm being poured into by so many scholars, whether I'm reading or, like, seeing them on social media. But, like, someone brought to my, like, uh, vocabulary this term citational justice, and I'm like, oh, like this is just a small way that I can practice this word justice, where it's like, okay, like let me disrupt the norm of only centering like the white male perspective, which is what tends to happen in the academy, <laughs> in the academy. And let me be mindful, like, who am I citing? And I think that's so important. Like, who am I rooting my scholarship on? Like, whose work am I building on? Whose work am I amplifying? Um, and I think there's little ways we can do that, even on LinkedIn, um, where we can like, you know, repost, retweet, reshare Black women, right? It's a small but mighty thing to do to disrupt the like wave that says that the only voices that are important and that have contributed to knowledge are, <laughs> again, richer, older, whiter men. Um, yeah, so for sure. Um, 100%. I'm happy that like that one resonated with you because I am so passionate about it. And I think it was just a small thing that made me feel like, oh, like I can do this. This is actionable. <laughs> I can well, apply this today. And during my master's program, I honestly had wished that somebody would have talked about citational justice because to your point, right, I wasn't super invested in like whose mission am I, or whose mission am I driving forward or whose whose words am I, you know, accelerating, right, in my work, I, because I had to cite a source, I was just like, this is the most relevant article. I, and then and it came up at the top, right, I didn't do the this, you know, thought process of citational justice, and whose message do I really want to promote. And I think, especially with the way that I operate, I'm like, it would have been nice to say, no, no, I'm not going to take the first one, I'm going to dig deeper and, and go to that. But it, I wish they would talk about that more in classes where you learn how to cite or on resource articles where you learn how to cite is talking about like finding that citational justice piece. Yeah. Like a uh, part of me is still not sold that I'm going to become a professor <laughs> because I have so many interests. Right. But like, if I do, I feel like that's going to like, these things are probably going to be built into every class for me. Like there's no way you're going to get through a research methods class without talking about citational justice. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah but those things when you say that and you bring it back to your own masters I'm like I think about the way I did my masters too and I like even in in the geoscience for sure in the geosciences all the people I was citing were old white men like there was I, even if I looked there would be injustice <laughs> well yeah well one day people will be citing you right um, <laughs> <laughs> because you made it happen um so the other thing that you would talk about a lot which I really love is um, you talk a lot about education and you talk about how, yes, education is expensive, but there are ways people can go at an inexpensive rate. And you talk a lot about being sort of a teacher's assistant and how that has paid for, you know, people to get through schooling. So can you share with people sort of that mindset of like, if you can't afford it, there's options. Oh, yeah. This is my latest uh, soapbox. <laughs> 
<laughs> like I was like I have I feel like I go through these cycles and I find something I'm like oh my gosh people don't know this like I have to keep sharing I guess that's the educator like ethos in me where I'm like I know something and like I all need to know it <laughs> y'all need to know because I don't want to gatekeep like that is the thing with the academy is that there's so much gatekeeping and especially when it comes to like the folks who don't know are the people who need to know the most honestly um and so in the academy I had a professor back in undergrad, way, way back <laughs> when I was a wee undergraduate who like mentioned in passing to me, like, oh, like you are doing research now. You seem to like this thing. One day you might consider going to graduate school. You should know that if you go back, especially in STEM, you should never pay. Actually, they should pay you. And I was like, they pay me to go to school. That was my answer. Like as a first gen person, um, I didn't have any family members in science. I'm the first scientist in my family. <laughs> I'm going to be the first one with a doctorate at the end of this. Nobody knew that. Like everybody paid out of pocket. Everybody got paid, got student loans. I was, uh, I, I did the math. I was like, I took out two loans every semester. So I graduated with 16 student loans, um, individual student loans. And that was normal. Um, where I was from. And then I got to Oberlin and like most of the people were either their parents were paying the $50,000 of tuition, just showing up and paying it in cash, which is like blows my mind. Um, but also there are people who knew how to work the system. Like their parents were professors, um, their parents were scientists. So they knew this information, um, which is also why I'm so passionate about sharing it. Cause like, I didn't know, I got almost to the end of my time and it just happened to be that a professor took interest in me and took me to the side. And so when I was going for my master's, I knew, okay, most of these programs are telling me I have to pay. I am only applying to the ones that say they are going to pay me. Um, I'm going to talk to the people before I get there to ask them if they have funding and so that they know my face so that when my application comes up, <laughs> they'll be a sponsor for me. Um, and I did it again. So that was in geoscience. Um, the second time around, uh, I had way more commitments. So I was pregnant when I applied to grad school the second time. Uh, I took my GRE with a newborn, like it was a lot. Um, but I did the same thing. I was like, I only applied to programs that were offering fee waivers for applications because they're expensive. Like each application in my field was like 50 to $100. Um, being first gen, there are fee waivers. Being a woman, being minoritized, depending on what program, there are fee waivers. Some programs even say they don't even need the GRE anymore. Um, so I was doing all that research to make sure that I am going to places <laughs> that will offer me avenues to not have to pay out of pocket. Um, especially because I um, saw an article the other day that was talking about the differences in funding for graduate students. And I was baffled. I need to share this to LinkedIn. I, I keep saying that one day I've been off for so long, but like uh, it was comparing like racialized differences in graduate student loans. And it was saying that 80% of black students who graduate with a doctorate graduate with graduate student loan debt and the average amount was $90,000. That was almost six figures in debt, right? The average white student um, that has student loan debt only has $45,000. And also only like, I think 45% of white students have debt. So there's like a racialized difference in who's taking out loans, how big those loans are, what the terms are. And then like add that on top of undergraduate loans that most of us have. It is a nightmare, which is why I am out here all the time being like, please tell somebody they shouldn't be paying out of pocket and please tell somebody that they should be getting paid to go. Like, I don't get paid that much, but it is way better than negative $90,000. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're getting like, and that's what you do, you do work, you do a teacher's assistant role, and you're helping out, you're getting probably free access to a lot of things on campus. Um, and honestly, like, you just get to learn. And that's so that's so cool, especially for you who loves research and loves education. Like, I, I always joked for me too. like, I said, I'll go back and get all the degrees somebody wants me to get as long as they pay for it like I'll get a PhD in HR if they have it like you know I, I don't like I don't care but I'll go learn anything and everything I just don't want to have to accrue all of the things that come with going to school right yeah um but the fact that there's such an inequity between even the debt it floors me right I, I don't know how if we're doing financial aid correctly how there would it, without bias, right, which clearly is not happening, but if we're doing financial aid correctly, and then creating equal opportunities, right, why is there such a discrepancy? And wow, wouldn't that be a lot to figure out, like, how there's such a discrepancy? Yeah, like, I, my brain, when I saw the numbers, I was like, all right, so there, some things have to be true for this to be, to ha to be happening. <laughs> like, first of all, like, a majority of the people who come to get their doctorate are independently wealthy, so they can just pay it out of pocket. And then second of all, like they're independently wealthy and they're getting assistantships because like there's only a few of them and those independently wealthy people have the money, the time, the resources to look good for grad schools. <laughs> so like, it is just like my brain, but which is also why I'm always on my soapbox. I'm like, all right, like if you are historically minoritized, which is like a majority of people because of how the academy is set up, like if you're a woman, if you're first gen, if you're black, if you're Latino, if you're anything that is not a like rich white man, <laughs> please know <laughs> that there are avenues to do this without you going into debt. Please don't go into debt. Please. Like, and like it, and oh, the other statistic I saw was that like graduate graduate student loans are projected in the next five years to become a majority of the student loan crisis. Like only 15% of students enrolled in school right now are graduate students, but 60% of the loan like balance is going to be graduate students. And I'm like, all right, future graduate students. <laughs> Again, with the bullhorn, like, please don't take out any loans. Like there's a way. <laughs> And so for those people that are like, I'm not sure how to do this, you're going to call Nicolette tomorrow and you're going to send her a message and be like, okay, how do I do this? And she's going to create, you should just create these resource guides that you can sell on like online for people of how to do this. Yeah. Tell Make them to click the link in my bio. All right. Like I, so I'm happy you are thinking this because like I, because I've been on the soapbox, I'm like, I'm going to write this in a book. I'm going to put it in a book. I'm going to write because I rant too much. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to put it somewhere where they can buy it. And I put like on my bio, I was like, if you're interested in my little book, this will keep me accountable to write said book if I know that there are people waiting for it. <laughs> so please look, check it out. Um, if you're thinking about going to grad school and you're not in like rich white man <laughs> and you want to know how to get an assistantship, I got the, at least I can share what I did. Like that's all I can do is give my blueprint because like I know my experiences worked for me twice. So, and I will shout out that Nicolette, like myself, is working through Book Boom Learning to get an ebook out. Um, because when I heard what she was doing, I was like, yo, you got to get over here and do oh, this. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> because you have so much information to share. I'm like, she could do like seven or eight or nine ebooks. Oh my goodness. Like, I just, I wanted to shout that out at the beginning and then I forgot because I saw your face and I got all excited. But I was like, that has spoke so much life into me because I've always wanted to write a book. Like, I've, I've been writing. I, I sat down and thought about it. I was like, ever since I was introduced to a computer 
and Microsoft Word back when I had a paper clip, like, and I was typing like this, I have been writing. <laughs> so like the, op like when you were like, have you considered writing? I was like, no. Um, but I, I do think, you know, once we get this first one done, I'm still in the editing phase. I had to call Erica and be like, look, Erica, life is lifing, school was schooling, and I need an extension. <laughs> but the draft is in, she is editing it, um, and hopefully that means more will come. Um, so I'm hoping for you. Yeah. And I'm hoping that you're having another uh, person of color, primarily maybe a female, edit your book for you, be your like proofreader. I'm like that sounds right up her alley. Yeah, so... <laughs> For the book boon book, I decided to have one of, so I know someone who's been editing. She's like old enough to be my mom, but like she's been editing for decades. And I was like, I don't have many funds. Like I'm a graduate assistant. They don't pay us but two pennies. I will give you a penny <laughs> if you look at my book, please. So Marsha is currently working on my book. Thank you, Marsha. I love you so much. Um, and I have told myself that I'm going to put these graduate assistantship navigation strategies into some form hopefully for free or for low because like yeah I'm trying to get to historically underrepresented folks and I want them to read it um so I'll also have a woman of color edit that too <laughs> I can't wait to see all the things Nicolette um I want to talk a little bit about one of your interesting facts Ooh, which is that you we're training to become an opera singer. <laughs> I need to know more about this. <laughs> I have, I don't even talk about my former life. I feel like I've lived in my 31 years. I feel like I've lived like four or five lives. <laughs> Wait, so in my first life, like music was everything. Despite the fact that like I was also getting straight A's in all of my STEM classes, which is how I ended up getting the geology major in college. Um, like I was singing Monday to Sunday in some way, shape or fashion. So I went to the fame high school, which is like, you know, the fame that the song, the movie was based on my high school. Like I went there, I was a music major, a vocal music major. Um, they taught us how to sing in a variety of languages. Like when I went to Italy this summer, I got to see the Arno, which is like this uh, river that like Omi about Mio Babino Caro is all about. And I was like, oh, like I got to put eyes on the thing I was singing about when I was like 13 and had no frame of reference. Um, so yeah, that was, that was what I was doing and I was doing well. Um, so I was auditioning a lot. Um, I was in a group, we traveled, we performed a lot. I was in like every choir in New York city. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, it was my whole life was like being a choral nerd, um, uh, being an opera nerd, being groomed to go to conservatory to become an opera singer. So like half of my Facebook friends, from high school and from college because Oberlin had a conservatory um, and I ended up becoming friends with the singers because they're cool. Um, half of my Facebook are like singing at the opera, like at the Met and at operas all across the country. And they're like mostly black and brown opera singers who are also underrepresented speaking of equity issues, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I feel like you need to somehow <laughs> write a song about geology or about DEI and higher education that you can sing on like a video, right? Imagine how viral that would go. You <laughs> singing this song with all these lyrics you create with like your awesome skill. <laughs> you know, that is something I've been thinking about a lot. I was like, I have figured out how to merge like 
all of my academic and social justice things, but I have not brought the music back. Like since I stopped singing when I was 18-ish, I mean, I've gone back every once in a while. Like I was doing praise leading when I was in my master's because like I needed community <laughs> and the church was a good one for me when I was in my master's. But um, aside from that, I have not figured out how to merge. <laughs> so this is, this is an interesting idea. I'll have to think on that, Elisa. <laughs> You should. I feel like there could be such great power that comes from that. Um, you also, in when we look at your favorite quote, right, you used a favorite quote from my favorite human being. Um, and uh, she was my favorite poet. I loved her. Um, and so you had a quote from her that's, my mission in life is to not merely survive, but to thrive and to do so with passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. And I love that quote of hers, but it so represents you. Yeah, it was the first uh, picture post I ever made to LinkedIn of myself. Was It had that quote on it. So when I saw that you said that Maya Angelou was your favorite quote, I was like, this has to be the one that I send back to you. So you, you know the profile picture where I'm like laughing? Like that was the first picture I had shared to LinkedIn with that quote on it before it became my profile picture. So like... Yeah, I just felt like it was a full circle moment when I saw that was your favorite quote. Because I was like, oh, like this was my like dipping my toe into the water of being a part of this community. Um, yeah, and I love, so my Angela has a poem called Still I Rise. And it's one yes. of my favorite poems of, of anybody's ever. Um, but, you know, when you had a my Angela quote, I was like, I love when people have the same favorite quote as me. Um, so is there anything else that you would like to share with the community? Do you, you know, that we haven't touched upon or anything you want to add or, or share? Um, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty open book. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. Um, what else can I say? Click the link in my uh, profile. Go to my LinkedIn. Click follow. Click the bell. Click the link. <laughs> Go uh, be my accountability so I get this book written. Um, <laughs> but also, I guess, like, uh, when I think about all of the things we thought about today, yeah, I guess my like one word of advice for the folks tuning in um, was like strive to create spaces where people can be whole and not have to chip themselves away. Like whether that's like you striving to be in spaces that are in alignment with you or you looking around and realizing that your space is closed off and opening up that space. Like that would be my mission to folks today who are thinking about like, what does it mean to think about DEI and STEM? All of those things. So, yeah. I love that you're sharing that. Honestly, it needs to happen more in corporate America. It's one of the things we lack a lot um, and we need to do better. Um, and doing better doesn't necessarily mean you have a box that says, hey, we hired all the people that were in marginalized communities. Yeah, great, they get here. And then they're like, I don't wanna be here because you don't have a, a culture of justice, a culture of equality, right? And so to your point, people need to feel like they can bring their whole selves. And that means they bring the stuff that, they, that they're dealing with at home. They bring the, you know, the challenges that they're facing from a social thing that happened in our world, right? Whether it's a, you know, a situation that we see on TV or one in their hometown, right? We don't know what's going on in people's lives. And we have to just be mindful that everybody is different and that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so my quote that I like to ask everybody about, as I said, is a my Angela quote. And it's people have, uh, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. People will never forget how you made them feel. Can you share a time when that was true for you? I feel like this happens a lot. Like as a 
blossoming qualitative researcher, I oftentimes strive to make sure that when I'm interviewing someone that they feel seen by me. Um, and so like whenever I get to the end of an interview and they're like, oh, that was a good conversation, like <laughs> that makes my heart pity patter. Um, so that resonates with me, like making sure that like people leave with the feeling like when they interact with me, like they leave feeling full, like poured into and not like extracted from, especially doing research. Right. Um, but then the second thing I think of um, is when I was two, two jobs ago, uh, I was taking a Coursera about emotional intelligence and they asked me to go to some folks uh, who work with me closely and ask them about a time when they felt like I was at my best and why. And they all like brought up this meeting. Like that's so insignificant to me. Like it was when I was a fellow and like we had went to meet the dean. It was my first time meeting a dean. Like that didn't mean anything to me. <laughs> but apparently like, you know, it's gravitas or it's supposed to be like buttoned up. Um, <laughs> but I'm just like being myself as per usual. And the dean is asking some questions. Apparently the meeting's not going well. And then uh, I chip in, like the first thing I say and the dean like perks up and leans in. And so like the whole vibe of the meeting shifts and we begin to have some progress when we think about what it means to do equity work in STEM at that institution. Um, and so everybody described how they felt like, wow, like Nicola is an addition to our team. We knew at that moment that we needed to hire you for the position above where you were because like you saved us that day and like the dean kept talking about you after that. And I was like, oh, like me just being myself and showing up because like that meeting, I was like, I don't even remember that meeting. <laughs> but like everybody else on the team was talking about, I'm like, oh, that was just a Wednesday. <laughs> So I feel like I abide, I try to abide by that. Like I try to live my life in alignment and be in places and spaces where like I'm in my element. So I'm allowed to feel like good, but then like, I'm also creating an environment where the folks around me can vibe off of that. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, being, being authentic allows you to be your full self. Um, and then when you are a caring, compassionate, empathetic person, it also allows you to help other people be themselves. And so I was always that person too. Like I would ask a question and people would be like, I was thinking that question. I was like, I already knew the answer, but I knew other people needed that, like had the question and they're not okay asking it. And I'm okay asking any question. So, you know, so you just got to put yourself out there. And I think for me as a, I'll say as a white person with privilege, right. I have to also be mindful that I'm in rooms sometimes that are not always comfortable for other people. And in order to be a really good ally, I have to recognize that and then figure out ways to make them comfortable. Mm -hmm. That means calling out bad behavior. Um, that means, you know, speaking up for people when they can't necessarily do that on their own, right? Um, allowing there to be inclusion in all ways and for all neurodiversities. Um, and so I love that you, you shared that example because I think for those of us that, you know, like you're saying, like, you're like, that was another Wednesday for me, but for other people, it really had an impact. And we never know really what, what, what other people remember about us. Yeah. Like that was such a good exercise. I have like enveloped it into my practice now, like every few years I'll be like, so like, how am I showing up for you? Can you tell me about a time where you felt like I was at my best and why? And yeah, I think that's been uh, good for me too to make sure that I'm in alignment and I'm showing up the way that I want to for people. So yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I hope everybody reaches out to you online, just not all at once, people. Give her some time. <laughs> She's a student. Um, exactly. 
and a mama. <laughs> um, and as she puts a citizen of earth, so that means she's got a lot of responsibilities. Um, but as always, reach out to her. And I like to end every podcast episode by saying, lead with empathy, act with kindness. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you for listening to All People Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave a five-star review. The work doesn't end here. If you want to keep the conversation going, find me on LinkedIn or Facebook or visit my website, apeoplepartnerllc.com. Lead with empathy and act with kindness. Have a great day.